Nobody is obliged to believe either in the future of history or in the future of society. It is possible that scarcely any other matter, however, upon which our thoughts and feelings have changed so little since the very earliest times, except that it still has not been established whether it is the novel that prevents man from forgetting himself or the impossibility of forgetfulness that makes him write novels. I'm Travis Holland, and this is Footnotes to a Novel. Write what you know. It's one of those old chestnuts of wisdom aspiring writers often hear, but I've never had much use for it. Not because it isn't good advice to know what you're writing about, which might be a better way of putting it, but because it's always felt limiting, an obstacle to the imagination. Write what you know has to me long sounded like write about yourself, and I've never had much interest in writing about myself. But knowing what you're writing about, that's another thing altogether, isn't it? And if you don't know your subject, well, you ask questions, and you find the answers to those questions. It's what writers do. It's what they've always done. Before he wrote War and Peace, Tolstoy spent much of 1864 learning as much as he could about the Napoleonic Wars, a conflict that occurred decades before he was even born. Histories, military accounts, memoirs, first-hand documents, which his father-in-law helpfully had shipped from Moscow. You can't imagine the difficulties of this preparatory work, plowing the fields I shall have to sow, he wrote to a friend near the end of that year. Studying, thinking over everything that might happen to the future heroes of a very big book, devising millions of schemes of all varieties and selecting the millionth part of them, it's terribly hard work. Albert Camus did the same thing when he was writing his novel The Plague. We know because he recorded the research he was doing in his notebooks. He read accounts of past plagues in Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War, and Boccaccio's Decameron, and Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year. He called medical statistics and case studies from doctors' memoirs, and even drew from the Bible, from Leviticus and Exodus and Ezekiel. He was curious, and so he went out and found the answers he needed. And that's what novelists do. They dig deeper until they know the subject they've decided to write about inside and out. It's what I've always done, been curious, asked questions, and done my best to answer those questions, all in the service of the fiction I write. It's what brought me to Moscow when I was writing my novel, The Archivist Story, and it's why my library is full of books not only on Russian history, but on Restoration England, Open Water Swimming, The Physics of Time, Dust Bowl America, The Gods and Myths of Ancient Europe, the origins of human language, well, you get the point. And that's the inspiration behind this podcast. Being curious, asking, and then trying to answer questions in order to make the fictional feel true. It's that other, often unexamined part of writing, maybe the part we don't think about when we're reading that extraordinary novel we can't put down. Authors go out and find the answers. And then they write the book or the story. 
It's what I'll be doing in footnotes to a novel, and it's what the authors I'll be having conversations with do too. And what about those books in my library? The ones I've relied upon in the past when doing my research. I'm talking in particular about the histories now, of the Russian Revolution and Stalin's purges, of the Great Fire of London, of the life of Julius Caesar, who, as he was being stabbed to death on the Senate steps, apparently did not cry at Tu Brute, as Shakespeare so famously wrote. How reliable are the histories we read? You know that old game called Telephone, where a whispered sentence is passed from person to person, and as it is passed, becomes more and more distorted. What if history is like that? A game of telephone, story after story handed down through time by a bucket brigade of earnest scholars and self-serving cranks, jostled, a little spill here, a little spill there, until who knows what we're getting. How do we know what Caesar said or didn't say as he was dying? Or that not only he but his attackers were wounded in the melee, or that he covered his head with his toga and collapsed, as the historian Adrian Goldsworthy tells us so vividly, next to a pedestal of Pompey's statue, his body riddled with 23 stab wounds. 2,000 years is a long way for that last specific detail, which is to say a long way for a single, violent, and very transitory moment in time to travel. And yet there it is, 23 stab wounds. And now that it is in our heads, which is to say in our imagination, there it stays. And why do we even need history? Why do humans feel this compulsion to pass along the story of what happened a hundred or two hundred or two thousand years ago? Why is it so important to know the past? And can we ever truly know what it was like to live in a world so different from our own before airplanes and antibiotics and the electric light bulb, back when nights were full of danger, when devils and evil men roamed, and that dark stand of woods in the distance became a cursed place where the old gods still ruled. In the hopes of answering these questions, I recently sat down with John Tosh. John is a historiographer and professor of history at Roehampton University in London, and the author of, among other books, The Pursuit of History, Aims, Methods, and New Directions in the Study of Modern History. He's thought a great deal about the important work historians do, how they get it right when they go about telling us the story of what happened and the potential traps that might trip them up. And I found his book and our conversation immensely illuminating. And now, John Tosh. Thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. And, um, I'm I'm very um, curious to know why you, with clearly a very accomplished sense of historicity, find the pursuit of history something that is helpful. <laughs> well, it, it, it's it's a uh, it's an interesting question because um, you know I've I studied history in college. Uh, I've sort of delved into history quite a bit in the course of my fiction writing, 
But it's only been this year that I've started to ask the question, what is history? Um, what is happening when we tell the story of the past? And how do we know that that story, what are the limitations of that story that we tell? And um, why are we so driven to tell the story of history? And that's what brought me to your book. So maybe we could start there and I could ask you, why do you think we are so driven to examine the past? Well, I think it's a twofold impulse. Um, and, the, and the more familiar part of that impulse is the, is the social impetus uh, to um, give a, a kind of convincing identity to the ways in which we position ourselves as members of a culture or members of a polity. Um, and because history has, as one might say, always had that function going back to the ancient Greeks and certainly, you know, well before the invention of the historical profession in the 19th century. What also interests me a great deal, however, is the meaning that history has for people at a more imaginative level. And, th and this may be where your own um, take on history you know, becomes particularly relevant. Um, and that it's that one of the reasons why history is or should be part of our basic cultural equipment is that it yields, on the one hand, it may yield ways of making sense of our social identities, but equally, it gives us, as consumers, if you like, an imaginative take on the human condition, and in particular, a sense of the diversity of how people have behaved in the past, against which we can position ourselves, either as a, as a rejection or as an endorsement, uh, seeing our own lives as, um, uh, as being, as it were, commented on by the record of the past. And I think that that's the reason why a lot of people read history for entertainment, uh, for, for leisure. Yes, and, and you and your book, The Pursuit of History, you make this distinction between social memory and historical historicism or historical awareness and and what is that distinction for you what is social memory well uh social memory is is really a kind of uh, a fancy way of referring to my first category that's to say history which is which is available as an endorsement of yes. our social identity and the reason that it's called social memory is that once you use the term memory you're into the terrain of knowledge which is variable, contingent, unreliable, constructed, all of those things. And uh, it therefore, from the, from the point of view of the historian, needs to be treated with some caution and some skepticism. And of course, you know, in the recent, uh, the recent history of, the, of historical scholarship, that's been a very um, uh, productive way of thinking about uh, the place of history in our society, that it's, it's all the time being, 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 as it were, dragged into the realm of social memory to endorse particular political perspectives. And all the time, or at least I like to think, that all the time historians are, as it were, trying to reverse that process and, and bring back history into a greater degree of integrity, which isn't to say that it can be completely um, separated from social memory, but it needs to be, um, how can I put it, um, I was going to say purified, that's, that's the wrong word, because as I say, there are going to be uh, 
form, forms of overlap, as it were, between social memory and history, which are which ha, which have have been there even since the development of the historical profession in the 19th century. I mean, in my book, I, I often refer to Leopold von Ranke because you know, he's the sort of standard bearer of what historians are supposed to be doing, and he's often um, s- summarized with a couple of phrases like, this is the person who respected the sources, this is the person who was absolutely objective. But he was a, he was a Prussian nationalist, you know, and, and uh, it's very hard to separate those two things. But theoretically and analytically, they need to be separated. And uh, you talk about in your book, Ranke, uh, Ranke I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but... Uh, near enough, near enough. <laughs> near enough, thank you. And he was, you said, he was probably the last major historian to believe that the outcome of studies such as his own would be to reveal the hand of God in human history. Well, I would think that actually there's a secularized version of that. I mean, so that if you think about the way in which history was was embraced and perverted, for example, by the Nazi regime, I think, uh, I mean, they would have simply adjusted that phrase to mean that the hand of destiny. Um, yes. You know, uh, and I have to say that that's been the case in America as well. The notion of uh, manifest destiny obviously is picking up a bit on that kind of um, uh, presumption. Absolutely. And I, I was just thinking about uh, this social memory, this idea of the story we tell our past. Reading the newspaper the other day, there is um, in England uh, or in uh, uh, London, I suppose, some folks are sort of going after some of the statues of Churchill. And it made me think about, well, what do people think when they think Churchill? Mm-hmm. And they had, they interviewed a, a man on the street who said, well, if it wasn't for Churchill, we would all be speaking German. And um, that makes me think of this story that we tell ourselves, this social memory of who was Churchill? What did he do? And you even mentioned in your, um, your book, The Pursuit of History, I think you refer to the story of Dunkirk as part of that's become a part of social memory. Yes. Um, it's more than just history. Absolutely. And in particular, it's become a part of social memory because it supports a particular way of defining what it means to be British. Yes. And, that's, and, of course, and of course, that has played into the whole Brexit issue in the last couple of years, big time. You know, the way in which a very, very small selection of episodes in British history ha- ha- have been sort of commandeered to support that political project. Um, and in doing so, in most cases, have distorted it a great deal. I mean, the point about Dunkirk was that it was a, a rescue. Um, it's normally attributed to ordinary people in their pleasure boats um, sailing over. Actually, most of the rescue was carried out by, by vessels of the Royal Navy. But, it, but the fact that there was this popular um, participation, of course, is what matters in terms of the social memory. And that social memory is extraordinary extraordinarily powerful. I mean, even to this day, you see it animating people. Uh, Folks poured out onto the street, like this gentleman I just referred to. Um, They were animated by this sense of their history, whether it is uh, distorted or warped or whatever, but they were animated to the point where they would actually pour out onto the streets and act. And and I do find that to be... um, a constantly um, 
remarkable thing about the power of history, the power of words, is that it makes people act to this very day. Well, in particular, of course, it made people act to defend their cherished views. And, and, and of course, once you feel that your cherished views are under attack by a social movement, which may be very inchoate, but for the time being is, is present on the streets all the time, you feel, you know, people feel they have to do something to, to defend it. Yes, yes. And, and that's just extraordinary to me that um, an idea, uh, and, and extraordinary, but also sort of a commonplace too, that uh, just simply an idea, words will make people uh, act. I mean, people go to war over words, people uh, do any number of things just from an idea. And in this case, it's this idea of what the past is. I'm, I'm constantly sort of as I'm thinking about what is history, I, I constantly kind of bump into that idea. Well, I, th- um, I mean, I think I, I mean, it's 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 like saying that actually, you know, uh, the bottom line is that history is actually an indispensable cultural asset, or or even an indispensable political asset, to put it very bluntly, um, and that most 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 polities where there is something like universal literacy are going to have their set of of non non negotiable assumptions about the past. You also write about the otherness of the past, as you call it. Um, and can we really know the past? Um, so what is this otherness? This, the, I think you quote uh, a writer, Priestley, uh, Hartley, excuse me, L.P. Hartley, who says, the past is a foreign country. They th- do things differently there. Yes, yes. Well, that particular comment is made in a novel by L.P. Hartley, uh, and the novel was a kind of retrospective recreation of the what, what came to be called the Edwardian summer, this notion that just before 1914, you know, uh, everything in the garden was, was, was lovely. Um, but um, this, this notion of otherness is a way of signaling um, in the simplest way possible that, that we don't get very far in studying the past, if we begin with an assumption that they were just like us, um, yes. and that fundamentally um, the differences that we perceive are simply um, uh, surface differences of, of dress in particular, that, that don't actually indicate any real difference um, in terms of their way of thinking and our way of thinking. And I think that the most powerful support for this proposition lies in the history of what has come to be called the, the history of mentality. In other words, once you start looking, for example, at how people during the Reformation thought about the, the, the divine in their world, or about the power of images, or witchcraft, a whole set of things, which actually, as soon as we look at them, we realize that's not us. There's some sense in which we have to explain these phenomena, not as obvious expressions of the human condition, but as cultural creations, things, things that were that were uh, that that can be explained only in, in in terms of a particular set of historical circumstances. So it's it's actually it's fundamental. It's, it seems to me to any any true historicity. Um, and uh, just to go back to Ranker for a moment, that's that's what he he pinned his colours to. And you mentioned uh, this idea of the past being different, the way that nature was perceived by your average medieval person versus the way we view nature now. 
Now it's quite common to think of nature as beautiful and welcoming, but people thought very differently about the past, uh, about nature in uh, medieval times, didn't they? Yes, they, they thought about, about the natural world as a frightening alien world um, that was beyond the scope of spirituality and civilization, was inhabited probably by demons, uh, it was the province of, of Satan, um, and something like a mountain uh, of exceptional height was seen as uh, not just potentially dangerous, um, but, but as, as not very interesting um, and certainly not uh, worth taking trouble over in the way that the poet Petrarch did famously in 1330 or whatever it was, when he managed to persuade his very unwilling brother to accompanying him to uh, to uh, uh, climb, I think it's Mount Ventoux uh, near near Avignon, and to and to his great relief, it was a it was a generally pleasurable um, uh, event. He he wasn't having to confront with uh, uh, demons or spirits or or the dangers of wild animals that might attack him. And one of the challenges of the historian, and I might say the challenges of a fiction writer, is to pierce that strangeness, that difference, that otherness of thinking how folks thought about their world in the past. Um, historians, I, and I think you talk about this and this idea of idealism um, in your book, this, that is one of the tasks of the historian is to try to imagine the mind of someone in a different era. Across the gulf. Yes, across the gulf. And I, I, when I was reading about or asking this question about what is history, I began to read into this. And of course, that, that brings me to E.H. Uh, e. Carr and his book, What is History? Um, and E.H. Carr had a particularly, uh, particular idea about history as progress, did he not? He did. And he what did. does that mean, history as progress? Well, it's a very problematic phrase because it's a it's a it's a morally loaded expression in a way that say history as process is not. Um, and what you find is that historians will use the word process today, but are very reluctant to use the word progress. So you take something like a topic like the Enlightenment, and it's become extremely fraught because the traditional way of thinking about the Enlightenment was that it was, a, you know, across the board, the great stepping stone to a civilized modern world. It was, it was process, as it were, you know, exemplified. Um, and that's, um, there are very few historians who would, who would express that unequivocally uh, now. Um, in Carr's case, his particular view of progress stemmed really from, well, I mean, what he says is that there, there have been two great inventions of the human mind in the last century. One of those was Marxism and the other one was Freudianism. So he was, he was actually sort of um, uh, reconciling some very different notions of progress. But fundamentally, he was someone who believed, well, as you will know yourself from thinking about the Soviet Union, he, he, um, he, he, he to the end, retained quite a positive view about what was going on in, 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 in the Soviet Union in terms of his, his definition of progress in that respect, I think, was to do with industrial capacity, the ability to raise the material standard of living, uh, the kind of things which in parts of the Soviet Union were, were achieved quite well under Stalin and other parts, of course, were not. 
And then he also had this line about, about Freudianism, which he wrote, he said much less about actually. Um, but if you, if you look at um, uh, what is history, those, those two um, um, ways of, of defining modern progress are, are central to the book, I think. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, you, you, uh, you actually, you say what are the, one of the safeguards of the historian is self-awareness. And I imagine um, a belief that Stalinism was by and large good for the people of Russia would maybe represent a lack of self-awareness or a, a particularly large blind spot on um, Carr's part. But also maybe a particular historical construction. I mean, Carr was 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 formed in the 1920s and 1930s. He 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 came to maturity in the immediate aftermath of the revolution, and I imagine that he was deeply influenced by what happened during the Second World War. But I I, I don't know that for sure. And you talk about in your book, you talk about the limits of sources, um, historical sources. When the historian goes into the archives. Uh, and seeks out these sources in order to tell the story of what happened. Um, you talk about some of the limits of those sources and what might be some of the limits of the archives. What limits the historian when they? Well, I think I think the fundamental limit is that it's very easy to think of the archives simply as a resource that yields information, without thinking about the purpose for which it was created in the first place. So, you know, the earliest archives in world history uh, were tax records um, in Mesopotamia, where the rulers wanted to be sure that they knew they were getting what was owing to them, and that when they came around the, the following year, they would know what had been c- collected the previous year, um, which would therefore determine what they could uh, collect on, on this occasion. So that, that, that kind of practicality of, of archives is absolutely crucial. And uh, and, and I mean, that idea, I think, has been elaborated on a lot by critics of the archival mode in recent decades. Um, so that, for example, the archive is now associated with what has come to be called governmentality. Um, that's to say it, it expresses a particular take on the social and political world that bureaucrats have under their political masters. And that that take is not necessarily a very reliable guide to what actually happens on the ground and what people actually do with their own lives. So that then leads on to a, a set of questions about whether the, uh, whether the archive is complete, whether it has been, uh, uh, has been, as it were, censored and edited, and there have been a lot of cases in recent British history where that's been quite critical. Um, and, uh, and then even questions of actually uh, of, of, uh, of translation. Um, yeah, archives that, are, that date back four or five hundred years, um, it's not always very clear what they're even referring to. So it, it's, a, it's certainly something which, um, let's put it this way, it's, it's never taken for granted as we all know how to work in archives. And so uh, when, when, when people are being trained as doctoral students or whatever, um, thinking about the archive uh, and, and what it can tell us and what it can't tell us, is of critical importance. Um, and it's obviously something that you thought about deeply in terms of your writing. So I, I suppose what you were saying in your book is that historians are aware of these limitations, good historians are aware of them, and they work within those limitations. 
And in fact, I, I mean, in a sense, one of the most crucial things to be aware of is the possibility that archives have, have been hidden away or have, have quite deliberately not recorded certain events. And the reason I mention this is that there's a whole set of uh, historical situations around Britain's withdrawal from empire, where this is a very critical factor um, and where um, atrocities have been committed um, on the colonized populations and any records that relate to those have been have been squirreled away and it turned out a few years ago have been hidden in in a house quite separate from the foreign office and buried away in the country i mean it's a, but you have to be on the lookout for for that kind of uh perversion of the of the, of the whole archival, archival idea i i was not aware of that story that is fascinating that's definitely right up my alley I'll well there's to... a book by um not, i can find out his name very easily but it's a book called the the, the history it's right here uh, this book is called the history thieves Thieves. And it's by a very good journalist called Ian Cobain, C-O-B-A-I-N. And it looks at a whole number of, as it were, end of, end of empire situations. Um, very, very shocking. That's fascinating. I will definitely uh, look that up. <coughs> now, uh, John, you say something fascinating. Uh, and it was uh, in, your, in your book, The Pursuit of History, you say something fascinating, and yet it's... When you said it, I thought, well, of course, this, uh, of course, this is true. But it, this idea of hindsight warping our historical perspective, um, this idea that we know how the story ends, yeah. um, say, if we're looking at the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution, or even uh, we're looking at 1941 or something like that, the fact that we know how the story ends warps or changes our perspective of uh in a way that people living through those events uh didn't quite feel they had a different perspective and so maybe you could talk a moment about how hindsight knowing how the story ends might affect our understanding of history it's it's a very very interesting question because i mean as soon as you put it in the in the way you've just put it it sounds like a weakness uh in the historian's outlook but in a sense, it's also a strength because one of the things that historians, it, uh, to my mind, are interested in is what is 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 what aspects of the past counted in terms of in terms of explaining our world, um, and therefore hindsight is a very legitimate um, perspective. And also, of course, it's 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 inevitable in the sense that if you are in medias res, as it were, mm. um, you are the last person to fully understand the significance of what is happening around you. You can understand it in terms of how it impacts on you as an individual, um, and you can understand it in terms of the information which is fed to you by cultural means, but you're not able to make that understanding of what's really going on. Uh, so in, in, in that sense, historians should not be apologetic about their interest in hindsight and the importance that they attach to it. At the same time, there is obviously, um, it's, it's crucial to have a corrective. Now, if you take the history of Russia, this is a book I don't know at first hand, but I know it's important in this respect. Orlando Figes, A People's Tragedy, um, is, is a book which looks at what actually happened to the Russian people in the approach to 1917. And, they, and, it, and it's about you know, the 
awful mess that was being made of things, even though you could interpret this in some other way and say, well, actually, it's leading towards some kind of reform, progress, or whatever uh, under Lenin. But you know, the, the actual it's a people's tragedy because what actually happens in in Fijas's view to the Russians is appalling. Sort of continue what we were talking about with hindsight. Um, we are living through historical times, and I, I do think that um, the story of our times, oh, I wonder, I suspect that the story of our times, we will not be able to truly tell that story until the historians look back at it. No, um, no, no. But the other thing to say about that is that you know, when you say the historians will look back at it, they won't look back at it as a, as a collectivity of consensual academic knowledge. They will look back on it with different takes on how to interpret the story and how to regard the the the, the direction in which things were moving, um, because those areas are nearly always particularly disputed. And and you mentioned that in your book, uh, the chapter, the limitations of history, this idea of the difficulty of finding consensus. And I think you know. It, Again, this is something which is viewed as a weakness, but we've got to be grown up about the world. The notion that you can survey what's going on around now and in the past and that we're all going to agree. I mean, where did that idea ever come from? It's, it, it's it, that my, my increasing conviction is that historical understanding and, and the, the way in which history is an asset to our societies is about identifying uh, a kind of, well, and fundamentally, a multiplicity of perspectives. Um, not, of course, indefinite. Those perspectives still need to be controlled in terms of the archival discipline that we were talking about a minute ago. But there are going to be different ways of viewing it. And it's impossible to keep separate one's, the, the value judgment one makes about the outcome from how one interprets its causes. And of course, in terms of 20th century history, and like the Soviet Union you just mentioned, that's an absolutely critical factor, which of course uh, explains a great deal, but the, it certainly explains the fact that we continue to argue about it. <clears throat> and those arguments are, it, it seems to me, to be understood not as a, as a weakness, but actually as a way in which the human mind grapples with the complexity of events. And uh, this leads me to maybe my last sort of questions. Uh, uh, this this idea, you make the distinction in your book between relativism or this idea that we cannot know anything about the past and plurality, this idea of, as you just said, multiple voices, multiple perspectives, strengthening or giving us a, a more deta detailed and complex sense of the past. Versus this idea of, and uh, one of the challenges of sort of postmodernism, this idea that we cannot know anything about the past. And what does postmodernism have to say about history? Well, yeah, that's quite a difficult question to answer because there are different uh, different levels of postmodernism. Yes, and in in my book, um, I tended to take the easy way out of arguing not against the straw man, but certainly against the more extreme um, statements about postmodernism, which ultimately are saying that in a philosophical sense, there can be no certainty, no certainty about the historical process, number one, 
no, no certainty, number two, about the meaning of any text, which of course is a fundamental attack on history because history for the most part depends on the interpretation of texts. And where it seems to me that, that, this, that, that particular, uh, as I see it, quite destructive way of thinking about history, where, it, where it's going wrong, is to say that, that, that demonstrating that something is philosophically untenable or unprovable doesn't mean that the process that we're talking about has no value. Um, in other words, uh, as historians, we are never 100% certain about anything apart from particular events that are well documented on the day, as it were. Um, and, but but the, the idea that somehow that kind of um, undermines the whole validity of history, in, in my view, is, is a nonsense. And what it actually conflicts with is that we cannot operate in a social world without perspectives on the past. And to maintain that all perspectives on the past are equally without foundation um, is, is, as it were, is, is confronting uh, our own experience, where in fact we do find that um, validated knowledge about the past can, uh, can be and often is of social value. One of the things you say that I found quite uh, instructive or helpful is that in daily discourse, when we talk to one another, meaning is communicated and meaning is inferred. Yes. And you say that it's quite reasonable to think that in the past, people communicated and people communicating, writing down their observations, were doing this very thing. Yeah, I think that's... Uh... That's what I call a good common sense point. <laughs> yes, which is sometimes lost in postmodernism. It's sometimes in ignored, <laughs> it's sometimes ignored uh, in the excitement. I find that postmodernism um, takes some truths, some interesting truths about language and the uncertainty of language and the flexibility of language, takes some of those interesting truths and tries to stretch that over a framework of everything. Yes. Uh, and that is one of the failings. It takes a, some fundamental truths that are useful. And you even acknowledge in your book, The uh, Pursuit of History, that post, some postmodern ideas help strengthen historis, uh, historicism, help, help historians. Well, particularly when they, when they sort of open the door to, uh, to, a, to a variable interpretation of particular cultural artifacts and texts in the past, there's a much more sophisticated way of understanding a great deal of that textual material that actually opens our our understanding to to areas of experience that we had imagined were not documented at all but taking a kind of deeper and closer and more refined look at those sources we find that the material is there all the same i think that's that's an important asset well and as you say in your book the past will never be placed beyond controversy nor should it be mm -hmm. uh, the story continues and I really th want to thank you for your time, John. This has been a, a remarkable conversation. Uh, I appreciate your uh, taking this time with me. And I really appreciate your book, The Pursuit of History. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very delighted to, to hear that.
My thanks to John Tosh for joining me and for helping me understand a little bit more about history. I'm Travis Holland, and you've been listening to Footnotes to a Novel.